We're going to uh, continue in our series through uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4, 25 through 32. Let me pray again. Let's turn to the Lord's word in Ephesians. Father, I pray that you would further create a culture in our church family of at one time resisting and turning from sin and at the very same time embracing and giving to one another grace and mercy. We long to be a family that turns from sin, that helps one another turn from sin, that helps one another fight for righteousness in the power that your spirit provides. So we pray this morning for greater clarity. We pray that we would see Christ in all his fullness, in all his beauty. Holy Spirit, we depend on you for all things, including this moment. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> the most gripping moment of Brian's sermon last week for me was when he had us look around and turn to each other. And with the gravity of a seasoned shepherd, he said, if you needed another reason to fight for righteousness, this is it. Our righteousness can strengthen our church family and our sin can do damage to our church family. That's not meant to strike fear or guilt into Christians, and it's certainly not meant to generate a, self, a sense of self-righteousness. It's meant to help us see just how interconnected our lives are as Jesus's people. It's meant to help us see how the strength or the suffering of one particular member of the body affects the rest of the members of the body, just as a broken ankle affects other parts of the human body. The main idea this morning that builds on where Brian left us last week is that Jesus' body thrives as each member pursues righteousness, the righteousness that God provides. Jesus' body thrives as each individual member pursues righteousness, righteousness made possible because of Christ. The therefore, at the beginning of verse 25, connects what's already come to what is coming. This is one line of thought written by Paul to the church in Ephesus. Jesus's people cut ties with the world and pursue a life that is consistent or is fitting with the life that God has brought and done in and for us. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, we read in verse 1, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then in chapter 4, verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, meaning those who are not God's people. That's what he's meaning there. And then in verse 22 of chapter 4, he says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Put it off. And then in verse 24, Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So God expects his people to live distinct from their surroundings, to live and to think and to feel differently than the world around us and differently than we used to think. 
A healthy local church strives to take off the things that used to define and characterize us and to put on new things. Last week, Paul made this point generally. This week, Paul gets more specific. And Paul will loosely follow the pattern of put off this behavior and put on this behavior. And then he gives us a reason to do so. The wet, cold snow clothes that you wore outside are no longer fitting and suited for a life indoors. And so you take off those wet, cold clothes and you put on warm, dry clothes. And this is Paul's point this morning, because with each of these commands, each of these five commands, Paul tells us why we should do this, how this effort and striving for righteousness not only serves us and brings glory to God, but it strengthens the life of the church family. It strengthens the body that we're a part of. The first behavior to put off and put on is found in verse 25. Reject falsehood and pursue the truth. Look again at verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You see the put off behavior, you see the put on behavior, and then the reason. Put away falsehood, speak the truth in love with your neighbor, speak the truth with his neighbor, for the reason we are members of one another. But is Paul talking about lying here or something else? What does he have in mind when he says falsehood? The word falsehood is, is, can be translated untruth or false or counterfeit religion. So Paul is focused on lies, not lying. He seems focused on what we're building our life upon. Are we building our life upon the truth or not? Are we being tossed about by the false doctrine and false teachers of verse 14 that we looked at two weeks ago? Or are we anchored by the truth of verse 15? Paul wants the church in Ephesus to build its life on the foundation of God's truth. To be devoted to the word inspired by the Holy Spirit and written down by the apostles. Having put away, Paul says, all that is counterfeit, all that is false, all that is untrue, Turn and speak the truth of God's word to one another. Fill your hearts and minds with God's word. Let it correct you and encourage you and comfort you and form you. And then take that truth of God's word and speak it, use it, minister it to one another. Proclaim it, teach it, pray it, sing it, preach it, disciple it, counsel it. Take the truth of God's word and deliver it and minister it and share it with the people around you. Now, why does Paul say we should do this? Why does he say to put off falsehood and instead speak the truth? For we are members of one another. That's why Paul wants us to do this. We are members of the same body. We forsake falsehood and speak the truth because of our shared commitment to one another. We're connected to one another, and so we take responsibility for one another's endurance in the truth. We care that the members of our body are enduring according to the truth and not living according to falsehood. We realize as God's people how deceitful our enemy Satan actually is. And we realize how captivating the world is. And we realize how deceitful and tempting our own sinful desires are. We get all of those things. And so we are determined to link arms with members of the body. And together we withstand the wind and the waves that threaten to toss us about. 
And together, as a body, with arms linked together, we stand against the winds of false doctrines and false teachers. And so to apply this, when a member of our body's faith is weakened, perhaps weakened because the trial that they're walking through is not only excruciating, it feels unending. And they know God is powerful and they know He's good, And they know he's wise, and so they can't figure out why he's not lifting this hard burden. And in those moments, we step under the burden with them. And with tenderness and with all conviction, we remind one another, we remind fellow members of the body that God's love is steadfast, that he is an anchor for all who put their hope in him. Or when a member of the body is ensnared by a sin pattern, We move toward that member of the body and we affirm our love for them. And then we point them to the truth of God's word and we call them to turn away from sin back to our merciful God. This is Paul's first put off, put on behavior. Reject falsehood. Don't build your life upon lies. Build your life upon the truth of the gospel and do it together for we are members of one another. Now the second put off, put on behavior is found in verses 26 to 27, where Paul calls on us to reject sinful anger and pursue reconciliation. That's how I'm summarizing what we find here in 26 and 27. Reject sinful anger and instead pursue reconciliation. Look at verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Put off anger mixed with sin. Put on this persistent desire to not let the sun go down in your anger. Why? So that you don't give the op- any opportunity to the devil. And so we see here right off the bat that anger isn't always bad. There is a sense in which the emotion of anger can fortify and strengthen our hearts to stand against injustice that we see in God's world. Anger can also help us to fight our own sin. Anger can provide the courage we need to protect our family from an intruder. There can be virtue in feeling angry. Wasn't Jesus angry at the effect that death had on Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha? Was he not seething with anger? Did Jesus not grow angry as he saw the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts? And so that when he healed a man's withered hand on the Sabbath, they were frustrated with him. Was Jesus not angry over the injustice that he saw in the temple? Jesus is even angry at a figless fig tree because it portrayed the reality of Israel in that generation's reluctance and rejection of him as the Messiah. English pastor John Stott said that there is a great need in the world for Christian anger. In the case of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses God's anger, it should arouse his people's anger also. And yet, we need to tread carefully because Paul's admonition is to be angry 
without sinning. And so we need to know the difference between anger that God calls us to here and anger that He forbids us from. And so why we are angry matters and how we are angry matters. Why and how? Listen to this penetrating question by Paul Tripp that's dealing with why we're angry. Think about how little of your anger over the last month had anything whatsoever to do with God's kingdom. Think about how little of your anger over the last month had anything whatsoever to do with God's kingdom. Your anger seldom comes out of a zeal for the plans, purposes, values, and calling of God's kingdom. The reality that Paul Tripp is bringing to the surface is that we're often angry because someone infringed upon or transgressed against our own kingdom. They blocked our kingdom's plans and purposes. They've disagreed with our kingdom values and way of thinking. We're not angry because they've offended God. We're often angry because they've offended us. So why we're angry matters. But how we're angry also matters. It comes down to a response, how we express our anger. Do we stew or fume or rage or punish or detach? Are we impatient or violent? Do we gossip or withdraw or rely upon substances? This person has offended me, therefore, it's right for me to be angry, and I will punish and control and manipulate as a result. Now, that may come to the surface in a boiling explosion, or it may come in a seething grudge that builds for months or for years. That's not how God's anger is. God's anger is patient and long-suffering. It's also measured and consistent and just. Here's how God describes himself to his people in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And what we see in God is a patient anger, but also an unrelenting anger. He will judge sin either in Christ or in us. And Paul's admonition is clear. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't let your anger build. Don't let resentment fester about in your heart. Don't let relational distance grow between you. Be intentional to pursue reconciliation. The reference to the setting sun places an urgency in our lap to deal with our anger, to not let it grow. Whether it's with someone else or with God, don't let your anger grow. Don't let the sun go down upon your anger. Deal with the source of your anger quickly. Don't let the feud continue. Squash the quarrel as soon as possible. Don't let anger grow like cancer. Because anger nursed and held will only consume us like a fire. Now, why does Paul tell us to do this? Why should we put off sinful anger and pursue reconciliation with God and others? So that we don't give the devil an opportunity, an opportunity to widen divisions between others or between God 
to let bitterness grow, to let anger become all-consuming. And so practically here, have you been offended by the member of the body? Think. Are you angry for the right reasons? When that emotion of anger comes up into your heart, when it wells into your heart, stop and think. Process the emotion. Are you angry for the right reasons? Has God's kingdom in some way, have his purposes or his values been offended in some way in this situation? Is that why you're angry? If not, repent and turn. If it is, then think again. Are you angry in the right way? Is your response demonstrating Christ's likeness? Do you need to speak the truth in love? Or do you need to cover over this offense with forgiveness, trusting that Jesus will deal with it in time? Move toward the problem prayerfully. Stay humble, speak the truth in love, and get some help if you need to. The third put-off, put-on behavior is found in verse 28. Reject greed, which is underlying this temptation to steal, and instead pursue generosity. Look at verse 28 with me. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The put-off behavior that Paul gives us is let the thief no longer steal, but the put-on behavior is rather let him labor, let him work, honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have some to share with those in need. Greed poisons a community. Paul also addresses this temptation to theft in his letters to Rome and to Corinth. Thieves need to quit stealing. And that goes for the greedy rich, those tempted to fleece and take advantage of the poor. Because it's easy for the rich to confuse their wealth with power over others. They feel that they've got the right to wrongly take instead of honestly earn. But this command also goes for the greedy poor who are tempted to mutter against and steal from the rich, thinking they've got enough, they won't miss this. Or what they have came too easily for them. I deserve this. This kind of greed, whether it's from rich or poor, has no place among Jesus' people. Instead, everyone, Paul says, should get a job and pursue honest work and put your hands to work. There's something pure and satisfying about work. Break a sweat, make a paycheck, and sleep well. Why? So you can be generous, so that you have something that you can share with a member of the body who is in need. Paul has gone far beyond the command just not to steal and we've arrived at the command to be generous. So are you tempted to take what isn't yours? In the grocery store aisle, or in your neighbor's home, or from your sibling's room, or when you're filing your taxes, or when you waste away your workday, or when you can work but are refusing to work, and you're relying on the people around you to meet your needs. Don't be content merely with not stealing. Paul calls on Jesus' people to work hard, to steward well, and to give generously. Big-hearted, eager generosity can mark Christ's body as we each work hard. 
Imagine a church body where everyone who can work is working to their full potential and where every need in the body is met by the body. This kind of righteousness can meet the needs of a body and preserve the unity and the joy of the whole church. Reject greed and pursue generosity. Here's the fourth one in verses 29 through 30. Reject corrupting talk and pursue speech that builds up. Reject corrupting talk and, and pursue speech that builds up. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul says to the church, put off corrupting speech. This word could be translated as rotten speech or unwholesome speech or depraved speech. There is no place for this kind of speech in Jesus' body. Instead, a local church should be a space where speech is used to build one another up. You picture the beach for a moment. A local church can use its words to build a massive, intricate, beautiful sandcastle. A sandcastle that pictures our life together. We can use our words to build this sandcastle of our shared life together. We can use words to offer moving, sincere encouragement. We can use words to deliver stabilizing comfort when we need it. We can use words to motivate one another to take risks to advance the gospel. We can use words to ask questions that pursue and draw each other out. Words that make us feel welcomed and desired by the body. Or we can use words that tear the sandcastle of our shared life together down. We can snipe and gossip. We can be self-centered and self-promoting in conversations. We can be sarcastic and rude and dismissive. And children and teenagers, I want to challenge you here also. Because your words can make this a place where other children and other teenagers feel welcomed and encouraged and built up in the Lord. Use your words to, as a tool, as a shovel to encourage and comfort and pursue and love. We experience the negative effect of words all the time. And this community has an opportunity to be different to work together to employ words that build up and strengthen the body rather than tear down and hurt the body. And why does Paul say this? Why are we to reject corrupting talk and to pursue speech that builds up? So that it may give grace to those who hear. And Beth Main said today, this week in preaching meeting, those who overhear. Those who hear and overhear our words will receive grace. Grace just to remind us, is favor or kindness or blessing. Your words can deliver that to another person, to those who hear your words. Let's create an environment where our words are like medicine to weary, discouraged souls. Look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He gives us two reasons in this fourth command to pursue it. The first, that it may give grace to those who hear. The second, that the use of godly words that build up will not grieve the Holy Spirit. 
So the converse is also true. Words that tear down will grieve the Holy Spirit who sealed us for the day of redemption. If Christ is living in you, then you have been sealed by him for the day of redemption. Paul is throwing our hearts into the future and calling us to remember what will be true about us. And the Holy Spirit is doing this work inside of us. He's redeeming us for that future day. And if you, if I use my words to tear down, then I'm working against what the Spirit is building in the life of the church. I'm going against what the Holy Spirit is about, what the Holy Spirit is constructing in the life of the body. Don't work against the Spirit. Now, here's the fifth command. Reject bitterness and pursue mercy. Look at verses 31 and 32. Paul writes, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, here Paul gives us six behaviors that he calls Jesus' body to put off. Take those off. Don't let those mark you anymore. I think bitterness and wrath and anger are clear. Clamor has to do with crying or shouting back and forth. Picture symbols clanging back and forth in a quarrel. Slander has to do with blasphemy. It's part of the root of the word. It is abusively speaking ill of another person. Right? You're, you're intending harm and ill to another person. Now, how do we summarize what Paul is saying here? How do we summarize these six behaviors? What should we put off exactly? Well, notice what he wants us to put on, which I think helps us understand why he groups these together. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. That's what the air that the church should breathe should feel like. That's what the air inside of Jesus's body should feel like. Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. Jesus's people are gentle with one another. Jesus's people are tender with fellow members of the body, quick to forgive. That's at least part of what should make a local church such a pleasure to be a part of. And I acknowledge that's not always the case. I realize your experience with Christians in churches may differ. In fact, that may be one of the reasons you don't think of yourself as a Christian or don't want to think of yourself as a Christian. But doesn't the church's failure in this area lend credence to Paul's command? Doesn't it lend weight to what Paul is saying here? Do you want to be part of a community that is marked by slanderous backbiting or one that is marked by kindness and honesty? Do you want to be part of a community marked by exacting, demanding, forceful interactions? Or do you long for a community that hungers for righteousness and a quickness to dispense mercy? A community where sin is confronted and forsaken and where mercy is lavishly given. Do you want to be part of a community where clamoring quarrels mark our members' meetings? Or do you want to be part of a community marked by trust and transparency and loving confrontation? Now, why does Paul give us this final command to reject bitterness and to pursue mercy? What's our motivation for treating one another mercifully rather than harboring bitterness? Paul says, because God in Christ 
forgave us. And that fact, the fact that God forgave us in Christ, shapes our life together. It shapes how we think about ourselves. It shapes how we think about our non-Christian friends. And it shapes about how we think about others in the body. We are a people aware, always, quickly, of the massive debt that we have been forgiven from. We are a people who remember how defiant we were in our sin. We are a people who rejoice that Christ died in our place and rose in our place and gave us all we need to follow him in the world. We are a people who freely dispense mercy to one another. We do not treat sin casually, not at all, because we know sin's hideousness. We know sin's power to enslave and to devour, even Christians. We know sin's propensity to rule over us. We are anything but casual towards sin. We are ruthless to put sin to death in our lives. But hear this. This is so important for our life together. Neither are we surprised by one another's sin. Neither are we surprised that one another struggle with sin. We Christians, we are doctors who at one time vigorously combat the disease and dispense the gospel cure to the patient. We do both things. We vigorously resist and combat the disease of sin in one another's heart and our own, and at the same time, vigorously dispense the grace and the medicine of the gospel. We are sinful veterans. We're veterans of sin who do not take pride in our sin, but who do make use of our past experience with it. And so we are not scandalized when a member shares a sin struggle with us. We are not disgusted. We are not judgmental. Instead, we move toward our friend, toward sincere repentance, hating sin and therefore turning from it. A church family, the body of Christ, should never be a safe place for sin to hide. But it should always be a safe place for sin to be surfaced and turned from. We should always be an unsafe place for sin to hide and always a safe place for sin to be surfaced and turned from. So let's remember what Paul's doing here. The Father, because of Christ, through the power of the Spirit, has made us alive. And as those who are alive, we're no longer members of the world. But he has left us in the world to make him known. Cherrydale, we want our body to be fit for heaven. We want our body to be suitable for heaven. We want to taste together in our life, in our shared life together. We want to taste what we will feast on forever. We want to live a life together marked by the kind of righteousness that will perfectly mark us in the future and forever. We want to taste that future feast now. Chapter 4, verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There is a place 
for gospel-motivated, gospel-driven effort to put off sin and put on righteousness, to delight God's heart and to strengthen the body. We want our life together now to be a foretaste of what it will be to live in Jesus' kingdom forever. For when he comes, sin will no longer plague us or pollute our relationships. And until then, our life together, we can thrive and flourish as each individual member pursues righteousness. Now, what if you've sinned in a big way? You're sitting here this morning under a ton of guilt because you know you've sinned in a big way and you know you've done significant damage to the body that you love with all your heart. You perhaps damaged someone's reputation through gossip or you've nursed a bitter grudge allowing division or you've compromised by embracing a lie platformed in our culture or you've engaged useless quarrels in the body or you've given in to sexual sin in a way that's damaged your relationships or you've used your authority to manipulate rather than to serve, or you've stolen something precious to a friend. How do you process, how do I process pain of knowing that we've sinned and our sin has done damage to the body? I want to first address defiant sinners, and then I want to address discouraged sinners. To defiant sinners among us. To those who minimize, coddle, soft glove, and play dangerously with sin. You need to know that your casual stance toward your sin is weakening our body. Just as your righteousness can strengthen the hands and the faith of those around you, your sin will weaken our body. You could envision yourself, if you are defiant in your sin, as underdeveloped leg muscles or underdeveloped core that weakens your lower back. Your sin does not just affect you, it affects all the members of the body around you who are affected by this particular weakness. The strong exhortation from Paul this morning is to put off the old self and to put on the new self created after the likeness and holiness of God. We all need to pray seriously this week about Struggles with sin that are holding on to our hearts. Struggles that we may be giving ourselves a pass on. We may be winking at or ignoring because it doesn't feel serious enough. And so as you pray this week, if God raises something to your mind, share it with a friend and pray together that you'd put it to death in the power of the Spirit and walk in the new life that God has made possible for you. That's to the defiant sinners among us to the discouraged sinners among us, to the discouraged, to those who feel shame and defeat and devastated and alone. You need to know that if you've sinned, then the members around you in the body will compensate for you while you are restored to the joy of your salvation. The solution when you've sinned is not to run in shame. The solution is not amputation. Press toward the body and ask for help. Like a right arm that picks up the slack and compensates when the left arm is broken, your body will help you, not damn you. And once you are restored, 
you will pull your weight again. And at some point in the future, you will do the compensating for another member of the body that needs your help. Cherrydale, as we pursue righteousness, as we each individual member of the body, as we each pursue righteousness, righteousness that God has made possible, we strengthen the body. And we will thrive as we put off sin, the sin that used to consume us and characterize us and mark us and to put on the holiness that God has made possible. And we do this together. We help one another along the road to heaven. And along the way, we can enjoy a foretaste of what heaven will be like when sin no longer complicates our relationships. Depending on the Holy Spirit's power, the one who sealed us for the day of redemption. Let's live together as a body fit for heaven. Lord Jesus, we readily confess together that if we were to walk away from this sermon with a list of five things to do, we would fail within minutes. We need your Spirit's power at work within us. But we also need to be reminded to strive to strive out of gratitude and delight for what you've done, to press in, to work hard, to exercise effort, to put sin to death in our lives, and to put on righteousness. We know that what you want for us, more than our goodness, is our trust in the work that you are doing in our midst. The work that Christ made possible, the work that the Spirit is applying the power we need is within us. And I pray that you would strengthen us for the work that you've called us to. We pray these things in your name. Amen.